Welcome to Connectify Conversations. My name is Sean Topshi, and I'm the Director of Business Development at Connectify. Our mission is to share the experience, expertise, and insights from gaming industry leaders that comes from years of navigating the complexities and impact of compliance. On this episode, I'm Chris LeBlanc, I'm the Senior Director of Compliance for Mohegan Digital. Thanks for joining us today, and remember to like and subscribe to the podcast. You can also learn more anytime at connectify.com. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y dot com. Chris, it's so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. For those who don't know you, I'd, I'd love for you to give us a on yourself, kind of your professional start and and where you are now. Sure, elevator pitch, right? So I'm the uh, director of compliance, or excuse me, now the senior director of compliance. I was recently elevated, patting myself on the back a little bit there. Congratulations. Um, Thanks uh, for Mohegan Digital. Just uh, in the way of background, so I, I started my career as a journalist in South Louisiana, uh, covering the state and local government beat. That, as I think you might be tipped to here, was my first sort of foray into how the government works. I, I was a, I was something of an idealist when I was a journalist, the whole fourth estate thing. But as part of that job, one of the things that I noticed was that from the it was from the outside looking in. Right. So I, I noticed a lot of things that I would like to change. And, and I wrote at length about things like coastal land loss and government regulation of the, the oil industry, oil and gas industry in, in South Louisiana. But I noticed that my readers didn't particularly seem to appreciate what I wrote and nothing was really changing uh, insofar as the, the government uh, officials who I spoke to or who I interacted with regularly. So wanted to get a step through the looking glass. So I decided to go to, to law school. Um, that's when I moved up to New England. I, I went to, to law school in Boston at Suffolk Law, shout out Rams. And then from there, as, as soon as I stepped out of law school, I stepped into an in-house counsel role for a cannabis startup and, and the director of compliance for a cannabis startup in Massachusetts. I worked for a couple of startups there, again, as in-house counsel and as director of compliance. The last stop was at a company formerly called Nature's Remedy of Massachusetts. I was on the startup team there and I did sell-side due diligence for that sale. We ended up selling to a, an MSO out of Florida called Jushiko. They're still in the industry, but I'm, I'm not sure how much about that industry, but it's it's a rocky one. Our, our CEO uh, is actually a former director of compliance in the cannabis industry, worked in, worked in can, cannabis payments. So they actually developed a compliance and payments product. His previous role. Do you know who he worked with? Uh, Hyper, I believe was the... the Hyper, okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the I know the brand. I don't know the company too too well, but I know the brand. There are a lot of those catchy one name brands that I, I've found in that industry, but it's a really hip thing, I guess nowadays. At any rate, so thereafter, after we sold, I, I tried to to start on my own, hang my own shingle. I did a, a few years of consulting work for uh, licensees in the cannabis industry and in ancillary services companies uh, in Mass, New York. Uh, a little bit in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and, and uh, in Connecticut. I had to shutter that company because of my wife and I got pregnant with our daughter. And, and that led me to 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 jump back into the the corporate life, which uh, again, led me to to the the iGaming realm here at Mohegan, Mohegan Digital. 
Again, I'm currently the Senior Director of Compliance. We're a subsidiary of the the Mohegan, the larger Mohegan Enterprise, which owns Mohegan Sun, the brick and mortar casino here in Connecticut, as well as a handful of other brick and mortar locations, both in the U.S. and abroad. And and just we're, it's disclaimer season. But anything I discuss here is my own opinion. It's not the the opinion of of the larger Mohegan Enterprise. Fair enough. We we appreciate the the little note. So you got you got sick of all the regulation in cannabis, and then sure. just decided to to go into the the really lightly regulated gaming industry as a transition, huh? Yeah. So there's an old saying about the frying pan in the fire, right? I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess you could say. I'd love to dive into that a little bit because honestly, two very, very heavily regulated industries, especially with a, a lot of change over the past decade and the two of them combined, I would say. What's what's your experience been like in your perspective, obviously coming from this journalism standpoint where you had this outside looking in at, at the government and, and how things are managed? What's it been like for you to be on the operational side of things in these heavily regulated industries? Um, I, I, again, I'm, 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 maybe I'm a masochist, but it's, it's a really, I, I guess I'll start by saying my appetite for these types of roles or for this, these types of industries, it, you, you make a fantastic note about the, the excessive regulation, uh, I'll call it. And that's, that's a philosophical statement as opposed to a practical statement. But, uh, I, it's it's like a big puzzle, right? The the my first sort of bites at the the proverbial apple in both industries was in the licensing front. Obviously, in startups, the first thing you got to do is get your license to operate. You got to build a thing before you can drive it. Sure. So that process was really what getting myself immersed in the regulations, getting myself immersed in the not just the industry regulations, but the coinciding corpus of 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 law that encircles it, whether it's municipal law, whether it's state law, whether it's federal law, depending on the the, the, the jurisdiction. It's really interesting to me to tease out what you have to do to be able to do this thing that's, that's number one of, in the context of cannabis, excuse me, of call it dubious federal legality if we want to to soften it quite a bit or or even still in the the iGaming industry which is is a really nascent call it a startup industry so you have to tread not only the the this fine line between meeting the 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 bounds of the regulatory requirements abiding by state local federal laws but also there's this really weird public interest or public opinion, again, they call it the court of public opinion, I guess you could call it, that we have to make sure that we abide by as well. And as again, as we all know, that's uh, moving the, the goalposts move constantly. But again, it's it's like gamifying your job. And that's that's how I've approached both of them. But but in the way of like similarities and differences, I'd say that I've I've pulled more similarities than differences. Interestingly enough, between the two industries, it, it it's sort of like the regulators are, are are in startup mode just the same as operators are in startup mode is a good way to put it. Not only are we seeking to abide by what they've written, but we're trying to push the needle back to something resembling reasonableness. Because uh, again, in these types of industries, out the gate, regulators are extremely concerned about public safety and for good reason. But they're they're going to land on the side of conservatism because that's that's a, a significant concern of theirs. Again, it, the 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 job for me primarily is about making sure that we, number one, meet the regulations, but making sure that we also protect our players, protect our, our consumers in the cannabis industry. I can dive a little bit more into the sort of specifics about each of those jobs, but I hope I was responsive without being rambling there. 
No, no, that was that was great. And there was there was something you you touched on there, and I, I really like how you worded it. Right, that both the industry and and the regulators are in startup mode right now. And I found it particularly fascinating from the standpoint of coming from the brick and mortar space, obviously been around for quite a while now, right? And the relationship with regulators, fairly established, not very heavy pace of changes to regulations from that standpoint with, with with some nuances. But there's been a lot more, I feel like, direct engagement and collaboration post PASPA between the industry and regulators. And, and probably something you experienced in cannabis as well, which is the environment is so much more dynamic because you're right, they, they have an initial set of rules, probably overly conservative, not for bad reason, right? Just because these are different industries, what would be considered vice industries, but then there's this kind of back and forth and, and collaboration and, and curious to hear how you found that in, in the jurisdictions that you operate in. Yeah. So it, uh, you, you make a fantastic point. And, and again, so just so, to, so, excuse me, to tease out that notion, right? The fact that not only is there a legitimate public safety concern, and, and I'll say it again, in both cannabis and in gaming, there is a legitimate public safety concern, right? Uh, we are not ignorant to the fact that, so on the cannabis side, I'll, I'll, I'll start there. There's just not enough science to be done that, that or not enough uh, studies have been done on, on cannabis for a litany of reasons primarily the the continued uh, schedule one uh, status of, of cannabis uh, at the federal level. But there's just not enough studies that have been done or long-term studies that have been done that that really tease out what the implications are from a public safety perspective. A lot of the the industry concerns or the uh, the local concerns, regulatory concerns, I should say, were around things like uh, like drug addiction or uh, traffic safety or parking, for that matter. A lot of the the jurisdictions that I worked in were just really they wrung they wrung their hands quite a bit about parking for some reason. But yeah, they, uh, oddly, I, I don't I was always confused about that. But interesting. At any rate, the 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 fact that there's such a, such a gap between the the what we know is a legitimate risk and what we what the regulators believe is legitimate risk it's, it makes it incumbent upon me and others who are are in roles like I am to to bring the experience of the industry to the regulators obviously in a respectful way in a communicative way in a in a a, a partnership type of way while still abiding by some of the things that we think might be call it excessively onerous but to to bring that into the cannabis and or into the uh, gaming industry as well excuse me we have what's called a response. So there are, are three tiers of, of regulation in the, in the iGaming space, and that's AML number one, anti-money laundering. We all know what that is, why we want to avoid it and prevent it to the extent possible. Responsible gambling, RG is the second, and privacy, uh, player privacy is the third. So specifically with regard to public safety, though, that RG, the responsible gambling ang- sort of leg, of the regulatory corpus is not a small deal. And it's not something that, at least if you're a responsible operator, that you take lightly because specifically because, and, and you noted the, the brick and mortar context a moment ago, Sean, prior to the legalization of, depending on the jurisdiction, it's been between one year and say eight to 10 years that iGaming has even been legal, either sports betting or, or casino betting online. So that's not a lot of time, right? But But prior to that, you used to have to go to a casino physically. You had to walk in, take some cash out, go to the cage, get chips or or or, or get coins, what have you, sit down at the slot machine, play, and then you go home. 
that's not to say that that environment doesn't make it, it doesn't have its own problems from a responsible gambling or from a problem gambling standpoint, but it makes it much easier, especially post pandemic or during the pandemic, rather when people were essentially stuck in their homes to log on to your, your device, to, to deposit your paycheck essentially, and then play through it in, in a couple of hours or, or less. So it makes our version of gaming, I should say, makes considerations for people who who could and do have problem gambling disorders it, it may it's a it's a very real risk and it's something that we have to again to take seriously again that's not to say that there are some things that from an rg perspective that i think might be a little bit silly or a little bit heavy-handed from a regulatory perspective but again we're, we're doing our best to be respectful of the things that we know are risks to to take an evidence-based approach to those risks a practical approach to those risks while also we've got a business to run, right? And again, to round it out, to to try to guide the regulators to the extent possible with with sort of practical industry-driven understandings of what it is that we're doing, what it is that works, and what it is that doesn't. And, and I think with that responsible gambling aspect too, that, that other situation comes into play that you were referencing earlier, right? You don't just have your federal and your regulatory, which this is more on a state-by-state state regulatory issue. Sure. But then you have the court of public opinion as well. And, and responsible gambling is, is where it comes heavily, heavily into play. Obviously, there's been a swath of media articles over the, the past couple of years that have come out. And I, I think it puts the industry in, in a tough position. And, and certainly not that I'm saying the media shouldn't cover it, right? Anything that's a public health concern of any sort, right? Whether there's controls mm-hmm. in place or not, probably something the media should cover because it's in the interest of the public. But but I think with what seemed like a bombardment, you have the gaming industry spending resources on battling public perception. And it's a shame because those resources could be utilized on the actual RG issue on how do we define the customer care model? How do we equip our responsible gaming teams with the tools to effectively work through cases? I, and I don't know what your experience has been. We've, we've talked to clients both on the tech and advisory side where they're managing RG through Zendesk or Salesforce right now. And it's, it's not what those tools were built for, but they're, they're dealing with what they can based on the resources that they have allocated and are available to them. And so you're fighting this, this two front war that's, that's making the industry much less effective than it potentially could be. Sure. Uh, and and uh, you made a, a ton of good points there, Sean. And the, the one that immediately jumps out to me though is, so not only are we, in, and this isn't to, to step too hard on the toes of, of journalists who are, are currently working and, and, and particularly who focus on the iGaming space. Again, coming from a journalism background, I understand how frustrating it is, it is particularly for my sources and the people that I work with to step too hard on the names of journalists. But that that aside, so not only are we combating the maybe alarmist aspects of some of the the reporting that we've or the 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 stories or social media trends or what have you that 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 the regulators do see and they do have to in some ways respond to because their constituents expect them to. But also a good example, we we have or a good example of of what I don't want to call irresponsible reporting, but reporting that could have been more robust. So in Ontario, maybe two months after the launch of the market, there were these stories or this group of stories that were published on essentially every gaming publication, gaming site in North America. 
around this, what they were calling a self-exclusions loophole. So essentially the the, the phrasing of the, the AGCO's, the Alcohol Gaming Commission of Ontario's regulations around self-exclusion said that no future gaming activity can occur after a patron self-excludes. Whatever reporter or whatever person wrote this article, I, I don't know who, maybe it was a blog, maybe it was just a social media post, but it caught on like wildfire. Their their reading was, and I disagreed from the, the outset with this reading, was that if even settling a bet would be would constitute a quote unquote gaming activity. Say you have, and this, this came to bear not only for us, but for other operators, but say you have a, a three leg parlay where you, the, the, you're, it's essentially you, you place a bet at one point for those who are a little bit unfamiliar. And there are essentially three events that have to, to settle in a certain way for you to be able to be successful on that bet. So say it's a, a darts match, for example, and you're betting on player A to win this dart, a darts match on December 1st and player B to win on, on January 3rd and, and so on. The, this one specific instance that I've heard of and that, that I experienced personally was that say a player places a parlay, they see that they're there. So their first leg settles as a win. They see that their second leg is going to settle. It's going to be a loss though. Prior to that, that game ending, that match ending, they go in self-exclude in the site and then claim that according to the AGCO's regulations, I get my money back because that you, you allowing this to settle as a quote unquote future gaming transaction. Again, that might be a little bit in the weeds for the purpose of this conversation, but it's, it, it bears out the, the point that we not only do we have to abide by the regulations, but in that instance specifically, we were combating someone else's misreading of those regulations. It, it is certainly a bit more complex, I think, maybe than than even the the, the black and white uh, words on a page that we have to abide by. No, and I, I'm, I'm glad you did get into the weeds in there, because I, I think there's a lot of situations like that where gaming, the things that can occur in gaming, things that can occur in wagering, especially once you talk about sports betting, you get into parlays, round wildlands, betting on futures, same game parlays, all of those things. There's so much nuance to it and regulation has to be written in a way that captures the nuance sure and then even if the stars align and everything is written in a way to capture it perfectly you still do have this public aspect right and and the interpretations of, of what that means or what it should mean um heavily sway public opinion and then on on the back end i i can't imagine the the client services and, and compliance folks have having to deal with that blowback of it. It's it's a very, very tough environment to to be operating right now. I, I think it's getting better. And again, I think the regulators have been very collaborative in the way that they approach this. It's it's so it's so new for everyone, but there's going to continue to be explosive news articles because they're exciting, right? It's it's sexy to write about like the Jaguars employee who allegedly stole $22 million, right? And then wagered it on, on DFS and a number of other sites on top of a bunch of luxury items and, and assets, I believe. But it's sure. it's it's a sexy article to be able to put out and it's sexy to be able to point the finger right. at an industry in particular. And, and you, you, so you make a great point about the, the quote unquote sexiness of it. it. It's, and especially those human interest stories, right? Like that, so that, that story that we're talking about is it, it, an example, unfortunately, of 
people who are bad actors taking advantage of a legitimate player protection measure. And again, that's not to step on the self-exclusion requirements that that, that every jurisdiction that we operate in carry, because again, the, those those mechanisms are meant to protect people who have problem gambling. And, and it's unfortunate that, that some people take advantage of that. But like you say, if it weren't, if it didn't sell, people wouldn't write it. And there was, there was another piece that, that you talked about, right? You got towards to, to these layers of compliance and obviously AML is a big focus of, of what we do at Connectify. Sure. But I, I think there was that third layer that you spoke about that really ties into your ability to effectively conduct the AML and ERG. And, and that's kind of the, the data privacy aspect, right? And you, you guys operate in particular in, in multiple jurisdictions and in multiple countries, obviously between the U S and Canada, right? So what have you found to be the, the challenges as you're talking about the interaction between privacy and AML and RG and how does that kind of differ across jurisdiction? How does your team handle that? Sure. I mean, so again, you make a fantastic point about data privacy. That's, that's a sort of a pet interest of mine, I guess you could call it since I was, since my law school days, it, we take a a jurisdictional specific approach, I guess you could say in the US, it's that whole 10th Amendment thing. In the EU and, and in the European context, they have a really robust data privacy regime, the GDPR, General Data Pro Protection Regulation. It, it's, it essentially it spells out what each individual person, if you're a resident of or, or a citizen of the EU, what you're entitled to, what type of protections you're entitled to, what remedies you're entitled to. Canada has something similar to those to the GDPR. It's not identical. It's a it's a sort of a a web of of interconnected data privacy regimes. PIPA is the the acronym. I'm not, I'm going to blank on the the entire spelling it out entirely. But and then there's FIPA, which is the so the PIPA is the private industry. FIPA is the the for government entities. Mm -hmm. But again, it, it it goes a long way in, in accomplishing the same thing for for citizens of Canada. What can private organizations do with your with your data? What can the the crown corporations or or state entities in Canada do with your data? How they how can they collect it, et cetera? In the U.S., there are some states. California is an example. Uh, Connecticut just recently passed a, a more robust. Uh, data privacy regulation this past year. So we're, it's moving. And again, depending on your jurisdiction, I'm originally from Louisiana. There's very, very little in the way of, of data privacy regulation there. Uh, so we rely heavily in the, on the on the courts here in the U.S. If, if, a, if a company, for example, uses your data inappropriately, we, we are a, a, an industry regulated sort of philosophy. So uh, individuals are expected to to enforce their rights in court. So say someone, again, inappropriately uses your, uses your data, your remedies in court for the most part, absent a, a specific regulation protecting you. So all of that is to say, long blathering responses to say that depending on where your feet are, depending on where your license is, or for us where our license is, is going to depend on what exactly it is that you can, number one, collect from, from our players, from our customers, in spite of the fact that, again, Whenever you sign up for a website, the term I always say, read the terms and conditions and the privacy policy of the website before you agree to to click on the button. Regardless, it, nobody has that. Nobody kind of has time, time, that kind of time. Number one, <laughs> number two, it's they, these these documents are huge and, and worded in a way that even as an attorney, I, sometimes I have a difficult time reading through what exactly are they saying here, right? And and again, being one of the people who who is responsible to write those things, I try to take something in the way of a reasonableness approach. Are our players actually going to be able to read this and understand what they're agreeing to? So even though 
as a matter of contract in the United States, we've taken the position that if you're able to log on to Facebook or to XYZ gaming site, you, the fact that you've clicked the box that says, I agree to the terms and conditions and the privacy policy. In fact, I'm not sure that that's a hundred percent true the majority of the time, but all of that aside, I'm sorry for soapboxing there a little bit. In so specifically in Canada, right there, are these these sort of privacy regulations that limit what who what we're able to share and to whom. So even though, like, just to, to use us as an example, right, we have a brick and mortar presence in Ontario. We also have a, an iGaming presence in Ontario. Those are two separate licensees, two separate legal entities, two separate companies, basically. Even though they both fall under the the, the common Mohegan ownership umbrella. But what Canadian law requires as far as data sharing, data privacy, not just as a matter of, again, Canadian law, but a matter of contract between the crown corporations, the the, the quote, quote unquote conduct and manage scheme that the, the AGCO has put together, there's, there are significant limitations on what we're able to share with each of these entities. And essentially, it's no player personal information, personal, identify, personal identifiable information, excuse me. So... If you're able to, and I'm sure most of your listeners are, are, know what that means, but if it's PII, if you if if it's a your birth date is PII, your your first or last name is PII, your physical address, your email address, essentially anything that could be traced back to you as an individual is considered personal identifiable information. So, in the context of RG, for example, say we've got a, a player who is an iGaming player who could conceivably be self-excluded on the brick and mortar side, right? They, they've gone to the folks at, at the brick and mortar casino and said, I, I, I know, I know that I have an issue with gambling. The brick and mortar folks cannot share that information with us. So we, as the iGaming operator cannot know whether they're in spite of the fact that it is a significant player protection need that data, that type of easy flow of data back and forth between us, would be hugely helpful for my purposes and for the, the the compliance folks over on the brick and mortar side, but again, it's 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 something of a black box. We're we're working with uh, the regulators as we speak to be able to to work through some of those complications as we, we have since we launched in Ontario. But the same thing on the AML side. So in the U.S., there's a, a, a the, as part of the Patriot Act, there's a, a provision that allows data sharing. You have to meet certain benchmarks. You have to register with with the federal government. But it does allow something in the way of data sharing in the, the context of AML investigations. Canada does not have that. So they, they, there's no no analog in Canada to that that would allow us to share investigative materials, again, with our brick and mortar partners. Or better still, we operate through a platform, a third-party platform, to be able to, to have our website up and running. So we have the skin, but they own the, the, the nuts and bolts of how, how the mm -hmm. games work, or the, the platform on which the games operate, rather. Um, it would be hugely beneficial if I could talk to the security and the fraud folks with our platform provider and share that type of data. Say player XYZ popped on one of our other operators uh, as a fraud risk or as an AML risk. Uh, you, you should do a little bit more research or, or maybe uh, scrutinize this player or better still, they've been trespassed from this other operator. We recommend that you trespass them as, as a risk as well. Because again, we're, we're pulling as much information as we can. We, there's a ton in the way of, of customer diligence, onboarding diligence that, that we're required to do to avoid bad actors. But if we don't know, we we can't action those those accounts. Again, it might be a little bit of complaining, but it, the, I think our friends over at the, the regulators know that these things are problems. They know that I've, I've, I've attended several conferences 
that these two specific topics regarding RG, regarding AML, and the the privacy regimes that in some ways stand between those two operations, between either partner organizations or again common ownership organizations, it, it's again the regulatory regime just makes their job our jobs harder, and it makes players less safe, and it 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 there it calls up gaps. But again. It's a conversation I think that a lot of folks are having. It's just we're not getting a lot of motion on it because, again, it's so new. So, in, in in this case, the the funny thing is, it's not as new when you take it outside the gaming industry. We, we take away sure. the RG, strip away the RG, and we look at AML. Sure, sure. For, from a Canadian standpoint, there's been several industries that have some level of digitization versus land based presence. And there's there's federal regulation that that kind of doesn't have that information sharing capability, right? Obviously, in the United States, like there's there's some 314B mechanisms. There's safe harbor, obviously, for doing so. Not perfect in its own way, obviously. Yeah. Thanks for citing uh, that. I was I was going to cite 314B, but I didn't want to again too deep in the weeds. No, we've had I, I think our 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 listeners that that we do have are. are compliance junkies like ourselves. So it's, sure. so it's good to bring up. I, I think what's interesting with Canada though, is even, even that's not there. And I think that's been a heavy focus of, of the consultation paper that's, that's going on and everything, but in, in the United States, there can be issue with that too, I think. And, and curious, you guys are in a bit of a unique situation with, with Mohegan digital on the U S side is the digital gaming license one in the same with the land-based license. Is it tied to the brick and mortar property? Yes and no. Again, it, it depends on where your feet are, right? In Pennsylvania, we are, we're, this isn't state secrets, we're moving into Pennsylvania. It is, again, similar to Ontario, but different in that, that, that there is a obviously a dotted line, I guess you could call it relationship between our brick and mortar and our digital, uh, uh, digital gaming licenses. But they are, again, still separate entities. So I think what you're driving at here, Sean, is that there's still this not a black box necessarily in the same way, specifically with regard to RG, but there is still something in the way of a concern around AML investigations, for example. You don't want to, we can't legally share a lot of a lot of information regarding FinCEN filings, for example. So 314B does go a long way in eliminating some of those barriers, but it is still, it's a, you got to get into the weeds, I guess you could say it, before you can accomplish those things. In Connecticut, it's, more complicated still because we're a tribal organization. Not only do we have our state license, we're regulated by the the, the DCP, the Department of Consumer Protection here in Connecticut, but also mm-hmm. by the, Mohe- the Mohegan Tribal Gaming Commission, which is, again, a subsidiary of the Mohegan tribe. So they're, they're our tribal, we have our tribal regulators, we've got the state regulators, and then again, we've got the federal FinCEN, et cetera, that we, we need to be concerned about. There, It's more in-house, I guess you could say, but it, there is still separation regarding what types of data we can share, how that data can be shared is more more of an issue in, in the U.S. context, because we have to be really careful about API integrations and, and how data warehouses are handled, how data security works, and, and that sort of complicated inner working, like inner web of, of how data gets from X person to Y person safely and appropriately is what we have to to work through as opposed to the regulatory hoops that we have to worry about elsewhere. And and from an AML standpoint, depending on the institution, there's I, th- I think there's an additional layer of difficulty. For, for you guys, it may not be an issue, but for some of these operations that are online betting only, the way things stand right now, they're not really covered within the definition of a of a BSA institution. I was I was having a conversation with a former FinCEN official. 
earlier today, actually, and you, it was it was an interesting conversation because I, I think what we've seen pushed by the AGA is for FinCEN to issue some kind of guidance, right, or, around that. And it, it doesn't really seem like guidance can, can cover it. I, I think there has to be an, an actual change to the definition, right, whether it's from casino to wagering institution or ga gaming or gambling institution, there has to be a wholesale definition change, which it, in, it is that's introduction of amended regulation, which then I think has to be open for a comment period and everything like that. And we just five, almost six year post pass, but we, we haven't seen anything of, of that measure. Like I said, I know the AGA has pushed the, the guidance standpoint, but I, I think there needs to be a larger conversation maybe around, are we approaching this the right way to work with FinCEN to to get to the point where those online betting institutions are covered. Because right now, some of them can't even apply for 314B, right? Sure. sure. And that means if they want to comply with AML, they're probably filing SARS, right? I haven't heard of sports betting operators who aren't filing SARS. But then there's a question as, do, do they really have the safe harbor if they're an online only, right? They don't have a casino license that it's tied to, which is in all the language and FAQs that FinCEN has. That's the only point where you see anything that says a sports betting operator is licensed in a casino institution under the BSA. So it, you make, again, several great points there. The first is you, you mentioned guidance documents. I, I find that regulators, and, and, and you might agree or disagree here, but I find that regulators are in one of two camps. Either they're too reticent to use guidance documents or they're way too ready to use guidance documents. We... Again, I don't want to call out a specific regulator, but there is a specific regulator that we work with who is extremely reticent to use guidance documents in any context whatsoever. And that, again, if you don't use a guidance document, then that means you have to change regulations. You have to change regulations. It requires a bunch of lawyers. I'm the first person who's going to talk trash about lawyers sitting in a room together for several months writing something that doesn't particularly make sense pitching it to the market, then several months thereafter of the market complaining about it, then the regulators either putting their fingers in their ears or doing some type of a revision, another public comment period. It, it's a, I understand the the genesis of it politically and, and from a governmental structure standpoint. But again, if it's as easy as saying this is our interpretation of the definition of a casino or a betting institution, then a guidance document is fine, but if the definition is very clear to your point and it requires something in the way of, of a redraft, uh, again, it, it's it's growing pains maybe, but it, your point about guidance documents, number one, is well met. But number two, it, it's almost a good faith measure, right, for those people who may not necessarily meet the definition of of, of who is who falls under those safe harbor provisions. Are we really or is the federal government really going to hold organizations who are trying their best to abide by the law and to, to, to again, uphold public safety and all of the things that FinCEN was created to do in the first place? Are they really going to come down on those folks? I hope not. But maybe, again, to use another cannabis industry analogy, maybe it's something like the Cole Memorandum, people who are doing their best, who fall under X category, who are doing their best to abide by the regulations as they understand them, should be maybe not immune from federal prosecution, but shouldn't have to worry about it when they go into work in the morning.
Yeah, you would think, and, and and I imagine there is some some consideration, right? So that these organizations aren't afraid that they're going to get come down on for, for sure, attempting sure. to do the right thing. But there's there's still some measure of being hamstrung, right? Like I said, that organization can't particularly apply for 314B, which means right. even if they like have a good un- feeling or understanding that, hey, this person, we know this person banks here or something of that nature, we could issue a 314B request to get a little more information to either one field comfortable about this customer to move to exclude this customer they just they just don't have that ability and it's it's such a huge gap for the industry right now and so i think the the sooner the industry tackles the fact that this is going to have to be a definition conversation and not a guidance conversation it's it's going to be a slow road but we'll at least get started down that road and i'm i'm not sure if we have yet we still haven't seen anything from fincen indicating there's going to be a requirement for public comment on something like that. Sure. And it's it's going to be a bear because Lord knows what different constituencies are going to be interested in the conversation, especially if wagering starts to seem like it's bringing in DFS under the umbrella, under a BSA institution, then you're going to have a whole separate lobby aside from your online sports betters, aside from your FanDuel and DraftKings, you're going to have the other side of the situation with underdogs sure. and prize picks getting in. So to me, the sooner, the sooner we go down that road, the better, because it's, it's going to take a while as it is. And, and six years post pass, but we have a massive AML concern. That's just not being addressed as, as far as I can see. Yep. Agreed. It's uh, it's, it's the, the opposite of that too, is that you've got several people or well, several organizations, I guess I should say, who have people who are acting in good faith, like this conversation, right? We just want to do the right thing. We just want to make sure that we're that the, we have the data and we can share the data that we need to make sure that not only are our players protected, but we as an organization and again, the, the, the body politic is protected, but on the, on the flip side, you're going to have several operators or, or either licensed or otherwise who aren't going to want that. I, 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 I'm not going to want to fall under the reg, the definition of that. That's going to require me to have something in the way of AML controls. We're combating that in some ways in Ontario as, as we speak, but not, not us specifically, but the market as a whole. But again, I'm sorry, not to pontificate anymore about that specific, look how good we are, look how bad they are. No, no, it's, it's, it's an incredibly fascinating topic. I, I, I do want to pivot a little bit here. And talk a little more about your your experience with with Mohegan. Obviously, in in tribal gaming, um, Mohegan is a powerhouse. Has been a powerhouse for for some time. They're outside of just tribal. They're in commercial gaming as well now. They're I think they were the first tribal organization to actually have an operation on the strip. Mm-hmm. And, and so to move to digitizing their their product offering in in, in some standpoint, and, and you really being able to be in towards the beginning a lot of a lot of that. How, how has that worked? And I, I think you've had, you know, your teammates have made that transition from brick and mortar to the digital space. How has that learning curve been for them? And, and how has that collaboration been with those team members? You, again, you make a, a great point about we're taking an industry that's ancient, right? The casino industry, the licensed casino industry is what, 30 years old, 40 years old. But gambling has been around, you know, for for as long as there are people who've had money and and time to spend it, it, I believe there's probably been gambling. A lot of those old principles, I think, are are carried through. But I, I guess to context contextualize again to your point, Mohegan Brick and Mortar opened here uh, in Connecticut. Mohegan Sun Casino opened here in Connecticut about 25 years ago, maybe 26 years ago. 
one of two two uh, brick and mortar casinos in the state, both tribally owned, and and that I don't I don't want to spend a ton of time on that tribal regulation structure, but it's for me it's fantastic in that we're on the digital side a startup that's stapled to the side of this this really well established really again like powerhouse brick and mortar gaming brand, not just here in Connecticut, but, but abroad, right? We, we, we just recently opened a casino in Korea. We've got our, our brick and mortar sites there in Canada. We've got, you mentioned at least a relationship with a, a couple of casinos out West where we have the benefit of that old institutional knowledge, but we also have this brand new thing that we're able to, to borrow a lot of those old old lessons from. My team specifically, we're a very small compliance team, comparatively at least. But my the guys who work under me are, are from the brick and mortar space, security, AML, fraud, a, a bit of RG sprinkled in there as well. And then outside of that on the digital team, we've got folks... I'd say the majority of our team comes from brick and mortar, either brick and mortar or brick and mortar casinos or DFS on the product side. We've got a couple of guys who came from some other DFS operators prior in prior lives. So I, I think the spirit though of your question is it is a lot of the same game, right? It's a lot of the same concerns, again, from an RG perspective, from a, an AML perspective. Privacy is a little is quite a bit different given the amount of data that we have access to. And I think that's the the differentiator. If we're going to really spell out a, a clear difference outside of, again, the soft things like being physically in a space is different than being on your phone at your house, right? So the brick and mortar folks have a lot more in the way of infrastructure that they have to worry about. They have a lot more in the way of ancillary offerings, whether it be shopping or concerts or restaurants, et cetera. Whereas we are, we're straight to the, to the, the meat and potatoes, right? Like we, we want to make our site look pretty. We want to, to offer what we can in the way of experiential things. But, but again, those, the experiential things that we can offer in terms of bonuses or concert tickets or what have you are, are really, again, to, to drive business back and traffic back to our brick and mortar casino. So as a, as a matter of gaming specifically though, I think that the major distinction and and benefit, honestly, for people that are that are like me in my shoes, is every single player that we have goes through a KYC process. Doesn't matter the jurisdiction. Doesn't matter whether they're in Canada. Doesn't matter whether they're in Connecticut. Doesn't matter whether we'll be in PA. Every single one of our players has to go through a, a know your customer process. They've got to give us all of their personal information. We have to run them through, uh, again, an AML risk analysis. We we have to make sure that they're, number one, not bad actors, and and number two, that in the event that they are bad actors, that we're able to to trace and provide the relevant materials to the to law enforcement or to the regulators as necessary. The Again, the fact that all of that data is from the time that a person opens a player account to the time that maybe they inev inevitably decide to leave or stay with us for 10 years or whatever it is, everything they do on our site's tracked. Every deposit's tracked, every withdrawal's tracked, every spin on a slot machine is tracked. So that robust data allows my team, specifically on the AML side, to, to have a really well-rounded, really, really robust picture of of what this person's doing. For a, Again, for an AML investigation standpoint, say we have a player who deposits and then 20, uh, 20 minutes later withdraws minus 10 bucks or something like that. That's going to generate a fraud flag in the, the platform proper that, again, one of my team goes on the back end, looks into that player's activity. We have a AML risk scoring mechanism that, that either escalates or, or decreases depending on player uh, behavior. And then it, it 
based on all of that and based on our internal analysis, spits out whether we should report this to the authorities, whether we need to trespass that player, whether it's just an aberration. So again, that job on the brick and mortar side is not that easy, right? It requires a lot more in the, especially if that person is not like a, a momentum or a rewards card holder of some type. You're relying on maybe facial recognition, maybe knowing that customer from other interactions. It, it's it makes the job of compliance significantly easier, I guess, is the is the short way of saying it. And the same on the RG side, human behavior is weird and splashy, and we can't quote unquote diagnose someone as having a problem gambling disorders. What we can and can't, should and shouldn't do on the the RG side, on the dig, digitally speaking, it's a bit more complicated. But I think again, it. Uh, that that maybe maybe that's the easier job on the brick and mortar side. If you see a person screaming at a dealer at a table, it's a bit easier to know that they're in some level of distress than seeing numbers on a screen. To round it out again, it's it's a bit of both, right? It's a bit of new new lessons and being able to to again bring some of that business back to the property to the brick and mortar property. But it's also a bit of learning from the lessons that they've sort of, you know, walking on the path that they've, that they've laid out before us. I don't want to call it the best of both worlds, but we're, we're trying to make it the best of both worlds. There's, there's certainly some advantages. And I think that data richness that you spoke about is, is, is such a huge aspect of it, even in RG, right? There's, there's data points that we never necessarily would have had access to on the brick and mortar side. Like when you think about somebody who's trying a bunch of different instruments to deposit into their account, right? And they're getting multiple failed deposits. Sure. That whatever X number of failed deposits, that's such a good number to be able to pull from, to be able to say, hey, this this is an indicator here that we may want to look at. And so that that data availability is is fantastic. I I'm a little more cautious in in terms of risk when it comes to digital gaming. And I've heard at multiple conferences now, uh People talk about on panels, if someone is 100% account-based and it's 100% cashless, the the AML risk is is diminished and and dismissed. And I got to say, there's a lot of industries that have been like that for a long time. And and I haven't seen the fines on the banking side stop yet. haven't seen these reports of hundreds of millions of dollars or fintechs. You talk about Binance, billions of dollars of illicit money movement. So in lieu of very, very good controls, these digital environments can also offer a completely seamless and frictionless way to move money across borders, especially for multi-jurisdictional operations. Mm-hmm. And, and I think another thing that's very interesting about it that, that I haven't heard talked about as much, but I find fascinating is, is how we look at fraud from brick and mortar to online. Normally, if we talk about land-based casinos and I think about fraud I'm normally thinking about employee fraud or like table games, cheats and, and, and things like that. And it's, it's a lot, not to say that that doesn't happen on the digital side, but largely the fraud conversation is dominated by chargebacks, synthetic identities, account takeovers and things like that. And even though there's a lot of advantages to the data richness, what I just talked about was issues that you don't necessarily have because those products and services don't exist on the brick and mortar side. So that's that's an interesting contrast that I have found. And I'd be curious how how your team that's from the brick and mortar side has adjusted to those types of risks that by and large are probably brand new to them. Sure. And you I mean again, fantastic point. So there are in a perfect way. So I'll move to fraud in a second, but in the AML context, right? So in a perfect world, all of our players are using a deposit instrument that it can be tied or is tied directly to their 
person to their identity or whether it's an ID document or, or what have you. That's not always true, especially in markets like Pennsylvania, for example, that allow things like prepaid cards to to as deposit deposit instruments. And, and you make a, a good point about controls too. So there are some internal controls that you could write in, say, limiting per month, like $250 a month from a prepaid uh, card, one of those things that you buy at a gas station, for example. I've taken personally taken the tag that I don't want prepaid cards whatsoever. I I, I don't want those. I've had some arguments here and there, but for the time being and for as long as I'm sitting in this seat, uh, I'm going to argue against prepaid cards. And, and not for nothing, there's some platform or payment providers, excuse me, who allow things like PayPal or Bitcoin or or other quote unquote blockchain money, for lack of a better word, to fund their player accounts. And again, I I appreciate the that it's traceable, et cetera. But but it's it to your point, the data that we have stops at a certain place, right? And and prior to or outside that requires subpoenas and and other things to be able to get access to. I think you make a fantastic point when it comes to the potential for dark money to come through. And it, and again, controls are hugely, hugely, hugely important there. And my hope is, and I'm not, the, I'm I'm just as suspicious as, as any other guy about AI, but my hope is that there is eventually something in the way of a sophisticated AI tool that that monitors those types of transactions that we're talking about there. That you you player X has deposited using uh, this specific mechanism and that specific mechanism has a gap, right? Uh, and we're seeing this, this spits out X, Y, Z patterns. Uh, I'm, I'm big on the AI uh, for, from a workload perspective at the moment. So I won't, uh, I won't dive too deeply there, but uh, in the fraud context, so my team, and again, you make a, a, a fantastic point there. Most of the job in their prior lives was around like you say, table cheese, like they monitor hours and hours and hours and hours of videos, making sure that someone at a blackjack table is not, not tipping their, their neighbor off to the, to the, like what the card count is, or better still someone stealing chips directly off of a table. And those things, I think, I think you make a great point on are really small in the universe of things that you can do physically in a, a casino to be able to scam someone or scam the casino or, or engage in some type of fraud. We are, and we do daily battle the the synthetic identities that you're talking about, or or better still, not necessarily a synthetic identity, just having someone's identification information. In, in Canada, for example, we can't collect social insurance numbers, which is their their iteration of social security numbers. Here in the U.S., we we can. So in Pennsylvania, we'll be able to collect at least a portion of a person, a player's last four of a, a player's social security number. So it gives us a bit more confidence that this person is who they say they are. But again, in, in Ontario, we don't have that ability to collect that information. So we are relying on ancillary documentation, like, again, physical photo IDs, which not for nothing can be faked using Photoshop or something like that. Photos of the player's face holding their ID information is, is another way that we, we try to circumvent that. The same thing with them holding their credit card. Uh, we actually caught someone trying to do that and trying to Photoshop the credit card with a really sloppy Photoshop job. That was, I can't believe they even sent it because it was, it was laughable, but it is, it's a, it's an interesting world. And, and the, the common trope is the, the criminals get smarter faster than the uh, law enforcement folks do. But, but again, you make a fantastic point. Our team has to, again, they borrow a lot from their, their prior experience in the brick and mortar context, but they're learning a lot of lessons. They have learned a lot of lessons very quickly. Uh, and I have, for that matter, as well. It's it's all about staying ahead of the curve, right? All about relying on whatever 
manpower or technical prowess that we can to, to stay ahead of these things. And, and it is so hard to stay ahead of that curve. As you said, the criminals tend to tend to stay ahead or get smarter quicker. They're, they're not bound by, by regulation, right? right? So they're, they're doing, as soon as they find something new, they're testing it out. And to your point about AI, they're certainly testing it out already. There's sure. AI technologies that help, help you spoof a person's face, right? So they could theoretically pass that test, even though you have that test in place. So it's, right. it's, it the, the digital environment, it's, there's a convenience aspect to it, but there is a terrifying aspect to it from, from a compliance standpoint. It's, sure. it's a, it's a very interesting environment to be operating in right now. And I'm sure it's been a fascinating learning experience for your folks on the brick and mortar side. I think for everyone, and again, to, to bring it back to the top of the call for the regulators as well, they're, they're, there are things that they are concerned about that they think are going to be the big bugaboos, but that that don't bear out. And fast forwarding 10 years, I think we're going to probably laugh at what we were all collectively concerned about because there's going to be one thing or a handful of things that we missed that, that were extremely important and, and in hindsight will make a lot of sense. But uh, again, we're, we're all new to this, to this game and we're all trying to, to make sure that we stay, we, we stay again above the ire of the regulators and out of the, the, the ire of, of public opinion. And hopefully we catch some of those things sooner than later. So we're not looking back 10 years from now about all the things we missed. That's what my job is for, Sean. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, my, my boss asks me often why, what makes me lose sleep at night. And I constantly say is the things that I don't know are the things that make me stay up at night. Chris, it's it's been a fantastic conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed having you on. I, I think we're just about coming up on time. So I, I just want to tell you, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again for joining us today on Connectify Conversations. You can support our show even more by leaving us a rating wherever you download your podcast and by sharing Connectify Conversations with gaming industry leaders like yourself. Visit Connectify.com to learn more. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y.com. Until our next conversation, always remember to minimize risk and maximize your efficiency.